Spotlight World is produced by Headscape.co.uk. It is brought to you by Shopify, an e-commerce solution made by designers for designers. For more information, visit shopify.com forward slash boagworld. On this week's show, Ryan and Stanton are back yet again, and we're joined by the one and only special guest, Mr. Marcus Lillington. We talk to Dan Rubin about making your interface invisible and answer your questions about failure and working on multiple projects at the same time. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, Paul. How are you? Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul and Marcus. Hello, and welcome to the first ever BoeingWorld.com podcast. Boeing World. Hello, welcome to the 100th episode of Seventy-ninth episode of BlogWorld.com, podcast for all those designing, developing, and running websites on a daily basis. I'm Ryan Taylor. I'm Paul Stanton. And joining us today is special guest, Mr. Marcus Lillington. Hello, Marcus. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> we need to put some applause in there. It was you, definitely. And I can sort that bit out. How are you doing, sir? I'm, I'm all right. Running around a bit ragged at the moment. Everyone else has gone on holiday. Oh, yeah. left, left you in the lurch. <laughs> yeah, well, bit, not too bad, but. It seems like uh, it's a bit of a skeleton staff at the moment, but we're just about managing. When, when I spoke to Craig this afternoon, he said he was playing games and he hurt his <laughs> finger. So that's, that can't be any good. <laughs> you just grasped on him. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I was playing games with him. I don't remember him hurting his finger. Oh, he said they were being a pansy about it. I can't yeah, remember what he said the game was that he was playing. But it was, uh, it's it was ball outside that's it. With, it the, with the nasty metal balls that can hurt your finger. Yes, oh. and he oh. hurts his finger. <laughs> so that we've got we've got a wall at either end where we play. We've got like this little little courtyard at the back, and uh, I've I've stood too close to the wall. You know when you got to swing the ball back, I've, I've crushed my finger against the wall with the ball before that bloody hurt. So this sounds like a dangerous game. <laughs> uh, well, it's you know stones spitting up and everything like that. Yeah. <laughs> so where's Paul this week? Um, well, he's just finished his Soul Survivor thing, and then he's just off on a family holiday. I think I don't know. To be honest, but he was having a week doing that, and he's got a week um, uh, recovering. I think. I don't know. Wasn't he on holiday like two weeks ago? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, to run your own. Only works half a year. Yeah. Well, we know that anyway, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, work is a very loose term, I think. <laughs> this is good. I can just say what I like now. You can. Yeah. You can get away with murder. He might listen to it. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Paul. <laughs> Yes. So we're up for an award. Yes. Well, I say we. It's not really. But the podcast is up for an award. You're you're as much a part of that award as anyone else. I say we'll we'll t- we'll accept it. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to get a mention, and it? it's always nice to see your name in .net. <laughs> yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's the uh, the .net awards. I think it's the netawards.com that the voting is currently open. Uh, so if you're listening to this, do go and vote for your favourite podcast in the entire world. Yes. This one. <laughs> it's got even better since we started hosting it. That's so, it, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. More, more variety. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shall we move on to the news? Go on. Then. All right. right. So the first post this week is an article on webdesignernotebook.com from Yaley, in which he has a little rant on the fact that we web designers like to complain about how little recognition our profession has, how everyone likes to think they can make a website, and how clients don't respect our work. When it comes to actually doing something that could make us a bit close to any other f- official profession, we're bored and often dismiss it. It's so much funnier to complain about IE6. Uh, You've yet again mentioned IE6 while we've been on every time. Hey, I didn't mention it. This is about the post. But you know what? When I was picking the news for this week, there were, I purposefully I wrote an article, not an article, but a news item about IE6 and the fact that Microsoft has extended support for another four years. But I thought... No, I'm going to purposely not talk about IE6, but okay. yeah, you bring it up. You brought it up? I didn't bring it up. Yaley brings it up. All right. Yaley, you brought up IE6. Yeah. It's your blame, fault. Blame Yaley. Okay. I can't remember the last time I mentioned IE6. <laughs> I don't know if should talk about it. No, it's boring. Move on. Move on. Right. So, Yaley's made a point of reading through the W3C specifications for CSS 2.1 to uh, CSS 3, HTML 4.01, and HTML 5. Now, while most of us can claim to be familiar with their specifications, how many of us, hand on heart, can honestly say they've fully read all of them? Can you? I've not read all of them, no. 
I, I, I dip in when I need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. When I need to clarify something. Well, the W3C specs are the closest thing we have to a manual, and anyone who works in this field should have read them at least once. We don't have to know them by heart or be able to quote from them, but we should all be familiar with what they contain and be able to use them as a reference like any other professional book. As Yeli says, after all, those specs lay the foundation of what we work on every day, so we should at least have an overall knowledge of them and what they address. I know, personally, this post has acted as an encouragement to print off the specs and read them again on the commute, so maybe it will for you too. Hmm, mm, interesting stuff. Um, I'm not sure... Um, uh, there's definite value in what she's saying for web designers to be up to speed with with all uh, with, with all these things that she mentioned the, the different specifications whether that would help um, uh, yeah, people running businesses have more respect for designers I don't know but then uh, when you were uh, mentioning that at the start of this, this piece I was thinking that it's nowhere near as bad as it was ten years ago or five years ago um, people used to think you could design a website for a tenner back in <laughs> 1998 a lot of people still do um, yeah but it's a lot less <laughs> I suppose. It's, it's not as bad as it once was and that's because it's such a young industry it's, it's going to take take time for for people to understand that it, it's it's a skillful job and it takes time to do something half decent absolutely so how, how we do that I don't know, I guess just uh, keep educating our clients I guess Yes. Yeah, I think it's pointing out to them that these things do exist, and it's not just using a an editor and dragging and dropping things in. There are actually fundamentals there that need to be learned, like any other profession. Yeah, I've actually been very impressed with how how closely Yale has been combing the um, all the specifications. She's written a lot of blogs at the minute, and they're they're all quite impressive. And she's yeah, really getting into nitty gritty of it. I think she's been writing for like Smashing Magazine as well, mm. and maybe Think Vitamin, I'm not sure, but definitely Smashing Magazine. I saw a post of hers today that I read as well. Now, the challenge is can you say Yearly's full name? Um, I'm going to mess this up. Uh, in Yearly de Lyon. I like the little accent you put. I so that was almost not a northern accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> almost. To be fair, out of the two of us, Paul's the probably the only one that can pull off not doing a northern accent. I just cannot. Change my accent in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you're a real northerner, then, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you cut him gravy, he'd come out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bloody hell. Oh, so, the next article is uh, one that actually I, I tweeted today and says, oh, I'm just wading through trying to decide what to go on this week's show. And this one actually got uh, replied to me on Twitter, which is quite good. Uh, it's called Structural Tags in HTML5. So, if you've been inspired on the last news story to read the HTML5 specs, then the next post might be of interest to you also. The HTML spec, HTML5 spec has added quite a few new interesting and useful tags for structuring your markup, and these will replace many of our typical div entries from our code. Of course, this is an audio podcast, so I'm not going to bother reading out any code for you, but it's quite a nice detailed article that explains a new tag such as header, footer, nav, article, and aside, which you can start using today. It also includes a couple of tricks to make current browsers treat them as they should by using CSS display block attribute as well as a nice JavaScript fix for IE. Uh, it's a nice primer for anyone starting to play with HTML5, so give it a read. Do Americans say primer? Primer, uh, quite possibly, yeah. Mm. Okay. I don't think so. <laughs> no? Who <laughs> says primer? <laughs> I mean, someone definitely does. Yeah, I'm sure I've seen, like on. American TV programs have heard them say Primer and it's like, what the hell's Primer? Yeah. Well, Primer is a word with two M's on its own. <laughs> <laughs> but let's not get into semantics. Right? Yeah, okay, fair we enough. speak the Queen's It's English. probably worth mentioning that you can get all these links from biagworld.com forward slash podcast forward slash 179. Ooh, yeah. See, that's why we need you, Marcus. We, yeah. miss, we miss little details like that. We forget that you can e- that it's even going to be online, to be honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think as soon as people see that we're doing the show, no one listens. No. Oh, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> you're, only, you're only saying that because you want to be able to go on holiday more. <laughs> well, I'm off on, tour, on the cricket tour in September, but I think Paul will be back then. So maybe you could, you could do a show with him. Yeah, and we'll, we'll introduce the show and then we'll introduce him as a special guest. Yeah, we'll have him as a guest. Yeah. That'd be quite good. He'd, he'd love that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so HTML5, I, I have to admit, I've, I've read a few bits and pieces. I've not tried to do anything, you know, formatting my pages in HTML5. Yeah. How, how, clo- how realistically does this work? Does this Can we start doing it properly? And you can start using it now. now. The problem is, and it's addressed in this article, is that while... Certain browsers don't fully support HTML5. They, they, they will render it 
and mm. they'll treat the unknown elements like the aside and the header mm. as just normal elements but you have to declare them as block level elements otherwise some browsers kind of break right. and also IE just goes I don't know what that is <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little JavaScript fix to to, to use it um, I've had a play with HTML5 I redid my online CV in HTML5 just, just to play with it and it's quite nice I've not used it to any major extent like uh, YouTube and places like that mm. are doing but the doc type is a thing of beauty. Mm. It's just doc type HTML. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. What okay. about you guys at Headscape, Marcus? Are you playing with HTML5, do you know? You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe. Possibly. Let's say yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, would think it l- I would think it very likely, but I don't like making statements that I'm not sure of. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, uh, almost certainly. Fair enough. Well, we'll ask Craig and uh, Dave because we're going to have them on the show with us next week. Yes, they're, they're the people to talk to about that. Yeah. We're doing the show as well next week. Yeah. Ooh. Well, they just don't, they don't do all down at Edscape. They're so busy <laughs> they just haven't got time to do podcasts anymore. So Too busy delegating. They've got all these bulls injuries. That, yeah. Be <laughs> <laughs> careful with Craig, yeah. Yeah. So luckily, he doesn't need, need his hand to uh, talk, does he? Really? <laughs> no. Can't code anymore, though. Well, I'm around next week. It's, just, it's only Boag that's not here. Oh. But, uh, Let's get you all on. Let's have a five-man show. I think we'll have to go in studio next door. Get three lines. You can do it though. No, you 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 have the young clever chaps next next week. It's probably probably the old fellow that just rants a bit. Can you imagine the rambling if there were five of us? <laughs> I think we should try that. The, the big big conference call one time. Well, we've just done we've done five or six of us in the room um, at the old offices before. But it, I'm not quite sure how listenable it was. I think sort of three's a pretty good number. Oh yeah, that was when we came down to visit, you, wasn't it? Yeah, we did uh, a big show. Then there was me, Ryan, Anna, you, and Paul. That was it. But we also did it with with we did one with Lee and Pete and Rob, I think, as well. But anyway, yes. Anyway, they're all right. But I think three's a good number. Yeah. Right. So the last news article is. Uh, from a list apart, and this touches on those times when you have to deal with your most difficult client, yourself. <coughs> so Leah Alcantara, I think I pronounced it right, discusses her experience and thought process of redesigning her personal site. Now your personal site's normally got to demonstrate your proficiency and the very latest development and trends in the industry while remaining true to the brand which you may have taken years to establish. I'm guessing this is if you're a freelancer more than anything. Uh, now she says that Cameron's Mol- Cameron Moll's mantra of good designers redesign, great designers realign features heavily in her thought process and it details her process from start to finish explaining certain dead ends like thinking you could jump right into Photoshop and play to starting with her branding and letting the design evolve from that now she explains how she consulted with some trusted design friends and urged them to provide objective design analysis instead of personal taste uh, while the article's focused on a particular site design, I think there's some good tips in here that we can all take away, or at least keep in mind when we decide to work with our most difficult client. I did struggle for news this week, I must say. <laughs> so this this was written quite last minute, so I apologise for the mess. There was a companion article, you know, the, the other article that the list about doesn't, it was on um, Sky Design, Simon Collison wrote. Oh, yeah. And um, I did read them both, and really interesting I particularly enjoyed Simon's because of the decisions they were making especially building a website for our new company Infinite Path and the decisions that they made making the changes and stuff I thought were really interesting the decision not to have a blog on right. the site you know what I mean and to keep it, it, the site one thing and then them all have their own individual blogs and stuff like that yeah and um I have to admit, whenever I redesign my site, I start from scratch. Yeah, I do the same. You get bored of the design, don't you? Yeah. And I think <clears throat> what she's pointing out here is that often that could be a bad thing. If you if you design so drastically different, then Absolutely. any branding or coherence you've got is just out the window. So it's it's mm. quite difficult. I do t- I do always keep my same logo because I've actually got a logo that I've had for years in fact I actually tweeted the other day because my logo looks just like Fuel Your Creativity's logo but I'm laying claim to it because I had made that logo in 2005 <laughs> <laughs> and Fuel Your Creativity's only been going about two years soon I've had the logo for years though you never know well they might have <laughs> well I think um, it's no, whether it's a, a, a corporate site or whether it's a, a personal site or anything like that the content should lead you should ask yourself why, yeah. why the site exists at all first and then work out what what the site needs to do 
and what content should be on the site relating to what it needs to do and then you you can wireframe that up which sort of starts suggesting layout and then um, look at the, the design side of things kind of last if you like um, I don't know um, yes I agree that generally you should uh, a design should evolve rather than completely change every two or three years but sometimes completely changing is actually what a site needs because it's so poor for example but um, yeah I, I think you, a lot of websites exist particularly personal sites because people think they should have one um, when you know, w- whether they whether they really need one or not is probably the first question that people need to ask. Mm. It depends whether you use it as well. Yeah. I changed the entire focus of my site because my main focus on my my version two of Have Conspired was the blog, and I never blogged. <laughs> I mean, I looked at it was like February, and the last time I blogged was when my son was born in November. Mm. You know what I mean? And that was the main yeah. middle bit of my old site. So I redesigned so that the blog was smaller and more out of the way and made it more of a portfolio site. And I'll blog twice as much as I ever have done. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, something goes out every week, and then I found that I'm blogging in between as well. I've never blogged so much in my life, and it's just this little bit in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've started to redesign mine also because I'm kind of wanting to start writing more. Mm. So my mine's going the opposite way it's to bring the blog more focused and give it a, more of centre stage. Mm. But I'm I'm in that middle ground where I've started to get a theme together and an idea, but I've not quite carried it through the entire site yet. Mm. And this is where I'm my own worst client because I've got I'm, all of my time is dedicated to something else. It's forcing myself to sit down and actually work on it mm. and get it going. Mm. Yeah, I think I think you tend to work on the things you like doing and you ignore the things that you need to do <laughs> yeah. um, because you can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so next up we've got an interview with Dan Rubin on making your interface invisible. He did a presentation at the Future of Web Design Leeds when they were on tour, and uh, and I recorded this interview with him, and it's really good, so I hope you enjoy. Okay, so joining me today is Dan Rubin, and we're at Future of Web Apps tour. Hello, Dan. Hello, Ryan. And uh, you did a really good talk this afternoon on making your interface invisible. Thank you. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Select all, delete. Select all, delete. Uh, no. Uh, Hide your interface from your users. Making your interface invisible. Yes. <laughs> uh, it doesn't mean what uh, what it sounds like. Uh, gladly, thankfully, it's uh, it's about the the idea of of designing for the experience rather than designing for uh, the visuals or particular uh, features or anything like that. Making mm-hmm. all of those blend so far into the background that users don't even notice them. Mm. And that's what I mean by, by making the interfaces invisible. It's not a new concept. Um, if you actually, if you, if you uh, do a couple of searches on the Google, uh, you'll, uh, you'll actually find even an, a, a list apart article back in 2000 covering mm. the same kind of stuff. But it just doesn't seem to sink in. Um, and one of the reasons that I've kind of been thinking lately uh, is that there just aren't enough designers and developers talking about it. You usually hear about the concept of an, an interface disappearing, being talked about by, well, now user experience designers, UX folks, uh, or usability uh, experts and consultants. And a lot of the time, designers and developers just don't, we don't listen to people who aren't the same as us, who don't do exactly what we do. We do listen to them, but we just don't listen in the same way. So if we only hear this kind of advice from people who aren't doing what we're doing, it's easier for us to dismiss it. And uh, and I think it's important for more des- people who do the actual design and do the actual development to be talking about it, not just thinking about it and doing it. You, you actually mentioned um, in your talk uh, that... Um, your talk was targeted not just at people who design interfaces, but uh, I can't remember how you put it. Um, not just designers who push pixels around, who actually, you know, actually do the visual design. And I've always associated interface design with that. Well, it's the the thing that I've learned, and I've, I've learned this from clients first of all, and then I just realized that it applies to all of us. Is that when people hear the word design, they think that it's something visual. And it's not. And uh, the concept of design is much more basic than that. It's creative problem solving. Uh, I mean, it can be called a lot of things, but design isn't just a purely visual uh, task. It, and and you can design things without any visual element. App people who 
who uh, design applications aren't designing the interface to the application. They're des designing the interaction. That's why we have so many. Uh, the answer to that the industry has come up with uh, is to come up with a lot of different terms. So you're a user experience designer. You're, uh, you're um, an interaction designer. You're a big and the reason we have to come up with those terms is because people hear design on its own and they think visual. But that's a visual designer, that's a graphic designer, that's an interface designer. If we're just talking about the process of design, mm -hmm. it's something that everybody's a part of. Whether you're a developer, you're an information architect, uh, you're a, an interface designer, or you're a manager, it, it really doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You're part of the design process. It's a it's a much bigger, uh, bigger concept. And th that's why when talking about the idea of, of designing for the experience, trying to design the experience itself uh, rather than the specific parts of it um, and making sure that those parts blend into the background and people just come away having had a wonderful experience, that's, that's why everybody in the team uh, on a given project has to, has to be a member of the design process. Otherwise, that won't happen. And you, um, I mean, you, you, I made a few notes when we were in your talk, and you, uh, you mentioned uh, only a few. Oh, well, a few. <laughs> Got a good page with you, just making a few notes. And uh, and you mentioned mimicking the phys physical interfaces. Um, oh yes. And you, you were kind of talking about um, trying to translate what we do in the real world into into your interfaces, and that those kind of experiences. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's there's this concept that uh, we we all know. We all talk about uh, look and feel. Mm -hmm. That's a common phrase that's used a lot. But um, there's a, a more specific concept and and term that I recently discovered and uh, called affordance. And it's it's been around for ages. Uh, it's it's not new to people who are in the uh, who are cognitive psychologists or who work in product design. Uh, and really, that's we we do the same thing with interface design. Anything that's designed for the screen, especially that's designed to be used, like like applications are, uh, we what we're really doing is designing products. And software designers again know about this as well. But for some reason, in the web world, we've got a lot of people who just who haven't come up through the traditional uh, uh, lines of education that, uh, that include a lot of that psychology background, which is fine, mm -hmm. as long as we are open to learning this stuff and realizing that we should know it. It all exists. It's been around for ages. And uh, it's basically the principle that allows us to interact with objects and interfaces in the real world outside of the screen uh, and understanding that we, we use the size, the shape, the texture, uh, and the consistency of things that we interact with in the real world to know how to interact with them before we touch them, before we do, um, and that is the that's the concept of affordance. That's what it talks about. Is that it's those principles, uh, um, or not principles, but those uh, uh, aspects of an element's design, of an element's construction, what have you, that allow us to know exactly what to do with it and how we can interact with it. Uh, there's a um, there are a lot of there are great examples of this in uh, Donald Norman's book, The Design of Everyday Things, which is a product design book essentially. But so many of the principles apply to what we do, and not just interface design, but again the design of applications, the design of interaction. Mm -hmm. People are using what we build, and that's no different from people using a product that you've designed and mm -hmm. engineered. We're designing and engineering what ends up being a total experience. It's not something we can hold in our hands in the same way as a physical product, but it's a virtual product. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned that you shouldn't have to describe your interfaces. You shouldn't have to put a description <laughs> against them. They should be so intuitive I'm to very against. I'm very against uh, instructions in interface design. This led to me taking, uh, catching you taking pictures in the men's toilets earlier. Yes, which, yeah. um, which, which was could, be, yeah. could be seen as compromising, yes. but... Um, <laughs> I, I'm doing that all the time. Now, what, what you what I found is that uh, uh, once now that I've started, I, I've always looked outward to because I didn't start as a designer in interface design. I started in graphic design and doing print. So I, I'm always looking at things in the real world for inspiration. But uh, just for whatever reason, recently within the last year or so, I've started actually realizing how many direct 
parallels, one-to-one -one parallels there are in the real world with these interfaces that are all around us. They're just three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. We just interact with them physically instead of through that intermediary of the mouse or the trackpad and the keyboard. Um, and really, they're not that different. And so these, these examples uh, in, in, in restrooms are full of them for some reason, whether it's a public <laughs> restroom or, or, the, or, or the shower stall in a, in a hotel where uh, something clearly hasn't been designed to be intuitive, mm. and thus it needs printed instructions. Mm. And it doesn't mean that instructions are, are, are bad. There are some things that are just so complex that they can't be simplified beyond a certain point, and they need some sort of instructional text. Mm. But... Uh, but far too often we use instructions as uh, as an easy out, where we've designed something that really should be designed to be more intuitive. Mm. But instead of going back and redesigning it, we just say, "Oh, well, we'll put a we'll put a little help icon next to it, or we'll put a little bit of help text that appears when someone hovers over something, or we'll just put the help text on an entire page before someone actually begins their task, and we explain it all, and we expect people to read this stuff. And the fact is that they they notice that it's there." They won't necessarily always read it, but they know it's there, and so it's adding visual clutter that is probably not necessary, because if you redesigned that interaction, you could get rid of the need for instruction. If you make it intuitive, there's no need for explanation. And uh, it, it, I think it's a good marker in the design process that if you, if you find that an element of your interface requires instructions, then you need to redesign it and keep refining it and redesigning it. It might not just be a refinement. It might be redesigning it from scratch. But if you're always on the lookout for that, like, is this intuitive? Does this work without someone explaining how it works? Uh, if you're constantly doing that, you won't dig yourself into a hole. Sorry, I'm just chuckling to myself because I'm just making a mental toilets reference with you and then realizing <laughs> that the last person I interviewed was Elliot J. Stocks. And I, and I think I started off the conversation with him was, um, Hi, Elliot. Last time I saw you were outside a men's toilet. <laughs> so I'm going to be getting a reputation. We've no, got it, it a, used to be the water cooler, and now apparently it's the restroom. The restroom. We've, got to clear, we've got to clear up that the actual reason that the men's toilet reference was because you were taking a picture of uh, a, a, a diagram showing the spring, the, the tap, and yes. also a description the, saying... The taps that, that we're all familiar with now that, <laughs> where, that, are, that are motion sensitive and don't have any actual uh, taps to turn the water on and off, and you just put your hand under it. Mm. Well, uh, And that design has been is not mm. new. It's been around... And I, I've never seen one with instructions mm. because it's intuitive, and they haven't broken this one. The one in the, in the restroom here just it, it just works. And but even though I knew how to use it, the fact that I saw that descriptive uh, image and text next to it, and it's next to every single sink, mm. was a distraction. So where I would have just been able to go and put my hands under it and use it. For a split second, I was distracted by, oh, what's this instruction? It made me think that it was something that I didn't know how to use. And that's where ins instructions can be bad as well, where it's maybe maybe you've added it in because you mean well, not because you've designed something that needs the instructions, but you think that it'll help the user by having the instructions there, and that, that extra bit of information never hurts, and that's actually the wrong thing to do. It's... Uh, it, it has the opposite effect. It adds clutter. If something is intuitive, because you've spent time designing it well to be simple enough that someone doesn't need instructions, by adding instructions, you're actually now making it harder to interact with. Mm. This is, it's, a, it's a weird, weird way, of, weird, weird occurrence, isn't it? Okay. You mentioned um, you mentioned also looking at desktop application design and mm -hmm. translating that into the web, and uh, and I found that really interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there's there's a lot we can learn about interface design from the desktop. Um, we can't do everything on the web, and even with uh, things like Adobe Air and Flex, we can't do everything that we could do if we were building desktop applications. But the point is that the basic interface conventions have been around for a lot longer than any of our interface conventions that we tend to think have been created on the web. The fact is that they, they haven't. There are very few things that are web-specific, one of them being the silly little Mickey Mouse hand icon that appears when we mouse over uh, a link and uh, that's one of the, ex the, the main example that I gave is that uh, on, in the desktop we have a, a much more precise pointer uh, uh, mouse uh, or the, the default mouse pointer rather the little arrow whether you're on a Mac or PC or Linux it doesn't matter that's consistent it has a very specific point where you know at the very tip of that there's one pixel that we use to interact with whatever we're clicking on uh, it's much easier to use a, to target something accurately, whereas the mouse pointer or the, the Mickey Mouse hand, rather, 
uh, is more vague. There isn't a single point that's clearly defined in the icon. Uh, and on top of that, it only appears once you've already started to interact with something. And people don't, uh, it, well, developers and designers, we tend to, to work with the web and applications very differently than, than most users. And uh, we'll mouse over things because we want to see what hover effects there are, and we want to. We, we appreciate maybe the idea of discoverability in an interface more than the average user. Uh, whereas a regular user, if I can make such a general statement, will look at an interface and without moving their mouse around, they'll decide what they want to interact with before they then go and try to interact with it. So if you, if the only way of of knowing that something can be clicked on is by mousing over it and seeing that hand icon appear, uh, it's not intuitive. Mm -hmm. Something can easily be missed. And uh, so what I suggest is to to take a cue from the desktop and only use that hand icon for what it was originally designed, which is hypertext links. So if you've got a link that you've underlined in your text on a web page or in a web app even, but as long as it's that, uh, like an underlined text link somewhere in the body of text, Use it. Leave it as its default. Everywhere else, if you use that that default mouse pointer, it's much more like using a desktop app, and it's much more precise, and it forces you to design something that looks like you can interact with it before the mouse ever gets near it. Do you think possibly people are just used to the mouse cursor changing to a to the pointer, and if you took that away, that could possibly have a have a detrimental effect instead of a positive one? I don't think so. I I think we are as the creators of the web, but based on the fact that uh, I still see some users try and double-click things on the web, for instance, which is a convention that none of us who work in the web would ever, we don't do that. And we there are actually some instances where we maybe should, because we can use double-clicks through JavaScript, and if there, if, if there's, basically if, there, if a convention exists, uh, we should try and, and use it because it makes for a more intuitive experience. So if we have an interface in a, in a web app that uh, that requires folders, for instance, and folders that are maybe more like on the desktop rather than a list of folders that uh, in a sidebar or something, uh, it makes sense that we, if it was a desktop app, we'd double-click it. We wouldn't just do a single-click. Mm -hmm. Well, let's make, make that web app respond to a double-click because that's ac what people tend to expect. Um, the mouse point, that, that Mickey Mouse hand uh, isn't something that people expect because it doesn't happen until they've already made a decision to something. So maybe maybe they're used to it appearing, but it doesn't affect their decision-making process. Uh, and because of that, if we eliminate it, what you'll find is that people won't, probably won't notice it's gone. You'll be designing things that people know they can click on, and all they're interested in is mousing towards it and clicking on it. Mm -hmm. And if it looks clickable, they won't expect that cursor to change as much. Otherwise, uh, people would, would not be able to switch from using a web browser to using a regular desktop app because that hand never appears. Mm. And if they were reliant on that, uh, they wouldn't be able to use the web for an hour and then go back to using a regular menued app. Mm. They'd be confused because the cursor wasn't changing. But that's not how people work. Mm. I think I think as well. It, it, how many times have you seen somebody where you look at a file structure and they expect to be able to right-click on a folder and have all the options that you normally have, like rename, cut, paste, copy, you know? And just because that's something that they're familiar with on the desktop. Well, exactly. And that's when I, when I talk about learning from the desktop, uh, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. The desktop has been around and and uh, and creating these conventions for a lot longer than the web has, mm. and users have been using desktop apps longer than they've been using the web. I mean, maybe you could find uh, younger users now who are coming to the web first and barely using any uh, desktop apps. It doesn't mean that they don't use their operating system. They do. They use their web browser, too. Those, those are the first things that they interact with when they start up the computer. Until we get to the point where, uh, and I hope this point actually doesn't come, if we had a device that was only a web device and had no other interface other than the web, then maybe you could make an argument for it, but um, I, I think that would be a bad thing, too. I, I would rather see the web and the desktop kind of come together as far as interface conventions and how we work with them in applications rather than being web applications. I'd like to see them just be applications. And 
when you use them, you don't think that you, about whether you're using something that's running in a web browser or that's uh, communicating with a remote server rather than your hard drive. You're just using an application to perform a task. There shouldn't be this distinction. And I don't think that users have as much of that distinction as we do as developers. We like to think that this, there's a huge difference between a web app and a desktop app. But to the users, it's likely that they don't think of it in those terms. It's just this is where I go to complete this task. They don't think that Gmail is a web app. It's not necessarily even a web email app. It's their email. It's mm -hmm. their inbox. That's how they think of it. And we have to understand that that's how users perceive what we do. And it's because it's a very, very different way of looking at it. Uh, Especially as the barriers are disappearing. You're getting things like Adobe Air for Twitter and and email into Outlook and Mail and things, and the, the kind of walls are just fading away. Exactly, which is a good thing. I like that. But as those walls fade, we need to, uh, as, as practitioners on the web, we need to uh, take as many cues as possible from the desktop and, uh, and help make that transition more seamless. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a few resources at then your... your uh, your talk, and I bet you can't remember. You, you mentioned. I actually, uh, can. I Jared can. Let's Spool. see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, well, I would have remembered Jared anyway. Jared, uh, Jared Spool and UIE.com has excellent resources about uh, all sorts of things related to usability, and that's ultimately this is all about usability. And and uh, the the article in particular that I uh, that I linked to at the end of the talk of Jared's was one that he wrote or published the exact same day that I. Uh, came up with the, the description and idea for this talk that I gave today. So we, it was a very serendipitous uh, moment, and it's about the exact same topic, about uh, making your interface invisible. And you talked previously. And uh, <laughs> Well, yes, we have. I've been doing work with, with Jared. I've been very lucky to, to, to run, do a couple of workshops with him, and uh, uh, it's always fun to share the stage with him, or it's, it's even just fun to, to chat with him over dinner, um, because... Uh, uh, you always learn something, and you always come away with a smile on your face. And uh, even if you, all you learned was uh, uh, was how to laugh and enjoy his magic tricks with with the card deck, uh, it's it's always enjoyable. Uh, so uh, he's a he is a great resource. His site is a great resource, and the and UIE as a company is a great resource for anyone who's looking for information about user testing usability. Uh, it's the place to go. Uh, and the article is very is recent. Uh, uh, so it just look look on uh, look on his site and you'll see under the list of articles uh, a specific one about invisible interface design and the experience. Um, I also referenced uh, uh, Steve Krug's book uh, "Don't Make Me Think," which is awesome, Very excellent, good funny, excellent. good, thin. It's all all the things a book should be: <laughs> uh, educational, easy to read, short. The plane flights worth into exactly yes, uh, and and you and you'll find if you don't have it once you have it you'll find that you keep going back to it over and over yeah. again you dog ear it and you mark it up like crazy, uh, and you share it around and sometimes don't get it back. Uh, and the other one was a book a wonderful book by Donald Norman, uh, the design of everyday things. And it's it's really a product design book, but um, but it's useful for anyone who deals with who designs something that's meant to be used by someone else. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the dialine.com product design website? No, I haven't. It's, um, <clears throat> can't remember who, uh, it might have been Elliot J. Stocks when he was last on, I believe it's just the dialine.com, and it's uh, looking at product design, so like the uh, the release a series of different products of a particular, like an aerosol can or a, a, a you know a packaging for a toy, you know, and look at all different packagings. It's, it's really interesting. It's got oh, nice. no, different approaches. I'll, I'll, have, stuff I'll definitely to, to have to look it up. Stuff. Really good I, I I eat that stuff up because uh, the more I look outside of the web, the the more I find that the Everything that we're doing, that that we're we feel like we're discovering for the first time, has already been done. A lot of it has been done, especially these basic uh, concepts of uh, of product design. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I mean, we talk about information architecture all the time, but we didn't invent the term. Uh, uh, it's been around for decades, uh, and poss possibly even decades before the web was around. So, and it comes from architecture and and the. Uh, and wayfinding, environmental graphic design. Mm -hmm. these, these are concepts that people have been thinking about for a lot longer than we've been thinking about. And 
possibly for a lot longer than some of us have been alive. Um, <laughs> and and it puts it puts what we do into perspective. I think mm-hmm. once we realize that, first of all, there's a wealth of information and knowledge out there that's been proven, mm-hmm. we, which uh, that can help convince us, but it can also help convince our clients. Mm-hmm. If we're going to someone and we're explaining the concept of information architecture to them, and we're not just explaining it as something that's new in particular just to the web. Mm-hmm. This thing has been around since before the web was was uh, even thought of. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes it a whole lot easier to, to gain credibility with clients. And it's not just information architecture. It's so many of these basic, basic principles of interaction. Uh, they're, they're all basic psychological principles of human interaction, really. What was that word again that you've been using all day? Affordance. Affordance. Yes. Yeah. Look it up. It's... Uh, it's good stuff. <laughs> okay, Dan. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to let me interview you. Thanks for letting me ramble on. And, uh, it's been a pleasure to see you again. Always. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, so this week's listeners section is a little bit on the fly. We're just going to read a question and answer it. <laughs> We've got nothing really prepared, so it's going to be interesting. That's making out that there's normally a lot of thought goes into these things. But Paul puts so much effort into the listeners' questions normally. They're all pre-written and everything. <laughs> Separate rehearsals Although before he, the, we go live. He is, he is in trouble because I was looking through Basecamp at all this content and everything, and I'm like picking up good questions, and Paul's already answered them but not deleted them from Basecamp. So God knows <laughs> what's been used, what amp been used. He's going to get a clip round here when I next see him. <laughs> so this this first question is from Dinu. I'm assuming it's Dinu because it's D-I-N-U. Mm-hmm. And uh, this person writes because I don't know if Dinu is a man or a woman. <laughs> could, could be either. Um, looking from afar, established agencies like yours seem to be almost perfect. However, I'm sure you've had to deal with missing, de- uh, missing missed deadlines, overbookings, etc. I would like to hear about some of these fail stories, just to get a "you are not alone" feeling for the rest of us, and also to know how you manage to overcome these common pitfalls. Oh, I wish I had time to think about this. <laughs> um, well, yeah, uh, the uh, putting across that we're almost perfect, then obviously we're doing it properly, because <laughs> um, that's part of the idea. Um, but of, of course, we we um, we have, no, fail is a bit strong. Um, I think if you fail regularly, then you're not you're going to sort of fail in business. But mm. um, yeah, I mean the 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 examples that he or she. Um, uh, points out of missed deadlines and overbooking are virtually that's well missed deadlines not that's not a hugely regular thing but it does happen and you have to deal with it um, uh, it's uh, take let's take take that example first of mid, missed deadlines usually uh, th- this comes down to not completely having a a, um, a, a full idea of what the, the scope of a project is when you're specking it at the start and you're pricing it up and you're, put, you're putting together timelines with the client. Um, and missed deadlines happen for many, many reasons. One is that often, and I'm going pl- to blame clients to start off with, um, the, the age-old one of they have, they have a, lot of, um, a, a lot of input, or they should have a lot of input into any project. They have to sign off stuff along the way. They have to sign off um, decisions you're making about design, decisions you're making about the information architecture of their site, um, you know what, what the priorities of the site are. You're saying you, know, you, you the you the agency are saying it's we think A, B, C, and D, and then you've got to get the the client to think about that in a big way and to come back and say yes, we agree with that, or we think A, B, and C, but not D, that kind of thing. So that often takes much longer than you originally think because clients aren't expecting that kind of level of involvement. And then you've got the classic. Um, the, the, the classic aspect of content, which is nearly always um, in the in, in the hands of the client to deliver, and it's one of those um, one of those tasks that I think everybody not everyone I'm, just, I'm starting making generalisations here. I think a lot of clients think that it's a it's either going to be a lot easier to put the content together for a website than it actually is, or B, someone else is going to do it. Oh, I'll get whoever to, to do that. And then they ask whoever, and they can't do it for six months, etc. I'm exaggerating again, but you get the general idea. So quite often, it is the, the reason why deadlines are missed are because of, because of um, clients not really understanding the process. Now, you can't really blame clients for that, and I think we have less missed missed deadlines now because we spend an awful lot of time at the start of projects explaining um, to our clients what 
straight away, I mean, you need you to start next week. Um, it's very hard to say no to that kind of thing. I mean, we, we've had a, um, a recent example of that uh, with a new client, very big name, who, um, it's a fairly fairly quick job, um, but it's a, the kind of name you'd like, like to have in your book. And they wanted us to work, start work literally two days later. Sorry, I'm getting uh, messages coming through on my phone. There's always something ringing in the background, isn't there, on a, on a Bagwell podcast. Um, but we, we basically had to be grown up about it and say, look, we can start work on this in three weeks' time, and you can have this much um, of our resource um, from that date. Kind of take it or leave it. And they took it in the end. So I think... I think the, an example with overbooking, missed deadlines, all those kind of things is communicate with your clients. Don't suddenly dump it on them or go quiet. I mean, that's the worst thing of all, sort of like pretend that nothing's wrong. If you've got an issue that needs to be sorted out relating to something's gone wrong, um, whatever that may be, then you've got to be upfront. You've got to talk to the client and offer them solutions. You've got to say, um, this is how we're going to fix this. And then usually, nine times out of ten, that that's absolutely fine and the fact that you're being proactive and that you're you're explaining ways of to fix the problem then nearly all, all clients will go yep great get on with it kind of thing um uh let me have a think on that some more have you, i mean have you guys had any um issues that you'd like to air at this point i've had i've had clients disappear i've had <laughs> a client disappear um I, I was uh, I was I was asked to do a particular job, you know. I took a deposit up front, which client paid, and no problem and everything. And we were communicating quite well. And I did design, and they completely weren't happy with it at all. So <laughs> I did another design, and uh, which which you normally won't really do, but he wasn't happy with it, so I did another design. Yeah. You know, took it as my my fault. I'd misinterpreted the brief type thing. Right. And um, sent him details, and he responded and said, "Oh, yeah, I quite like that. You know, blah blah. blah. I'm just in Berlin." And then I never heard from him again. What, I, I, ever? I, ever? I've, I've tried. I've tried emailing him. Tried ringing him. Phone's dead. No response to email. It's like, what the hell happened to him in Berlin? God, I just completely fell off the face. Yeah, luckily I had my deposit. But well, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose maybe like, we we have had a couple of like I I've cited a couple um, of what I would call proper failures over the years, and you know they they've. They're usually down to mis- miscommunication um, and and the wrong expectations from from both parties. You know, you'll go into a, go into a um, into a project thinking this is what we need to do, and the client's expecting you're going to build something completely different for them. But everyone's thinking they're right, and then as it's happening, it's all you know. It's people slowly start to realise from both sides that this isn't right. Uh, and on both cases, we've just kind of had to sort of put the cards on the table um, and say this isn't working. It's not what we not what we were delivering is not what what, what was it like, expected of the client, um, or what, not what the client was expecting. Sorry, um, and we've had to say, well, look, you know, this is the amount of work we've done. This is how much we feel we should be re- reimbursed from that, and don't be you know you, you need to be fair at that point. Because, um, you know, you need to be fair to yourself and fair to fair to the client and just say you know be big enough to say well it's not work let's let's move on and that's that's happened twice in nearly eight years so um i think i think what we've learned over the um over the years is don't rush into things i mean for for example the amount of time we spend before i, I was mentioning this during the, during the news about about what you need to do before you before you open photoshop um that process that we go through to ensure that we're that we are doing the right thing that we're that we've got the right emphasis on content that we've got the right emphasis on on the, on on the company's brand or the organization's brand all of that stuff is done prior to any kind of coding work or any design work and that is the best way in my view to avoid things like missed deadlines or um uh, mistakes of uh, misinterpretation the other the other side of it is relating more to to your issue with the guy going going AWOL is it come, comes back to me um, my, my old adage of make sure you've got a contract in place mm. um, and uh, I mean and the fact that you got you got the money up front I mean that's 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 an interesting point because I mean even though we you, near, on nearly every project we we will take a percentage um, on commencement but it's invoicing on commencement and 30 day payment um, so 
So in theory, we could do 30 days' work and people could run away. Mm. So sometimes you kind of have to say, well, actually, no, I'm a little bit nervous about this one. Um, we want, you know, sort of cash in the bank, then we'll start work. Uh, and you've just got to be kind of big enough um, and uh, have, have enough sort of pride in your own business and your own work to, to be able to say that kind of thing. Mm. Excuse my phone, I, must, I thought I turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> I have now. Um, I don't know if I've answered the question uh, completely there, but yeah, we, we, we struggle with managing projects. There's only 14 of us, so we've got four designers, four developers, three project managers, and three guys that do the kind of information architecture work and the interviewing of stakeholders and that kind of stuff. And if you've got, I don't know, 10 plus projects on the go at one time, then that takes some serious organizing, and that's what our project managers do. And they're very organized. Uh, I'm not particularly organized. I just kind of, you know, flit along. Um, but those guys know exactly where we're at with every project. They know what tasks have been done, what tasks are being done, and what tasks need to be done, and when they need to be done by. And obviously, those when they need to be done by change, depending on how well, uh, how, um, how well done the previous tasks are. But you just, you need to, you need to be, you either need to have somebody managing a project or you need to not if it's just you on your own for example you need to make sure that you're not ignoring the the project management side of your project and just concentrating on doing the design for example because uh, it is really important i don't know have i answered the question i think so yeah i think it's i think um interesting point that you were just saying that um you invoice the client on commencement but they've got you know 30 days to pay and yeah. you could do 30 days work i I have to admit, I um, I won't start until I've actually had my deposit and yeah. it's appeared in the bank. But the issue with that is you can, um, you know, if you you kind of got to say, you know, you've got to pay them straight away. You can't give them 30 days because you give them 30 days and then they pay on the 30th day. That's a month <laughs> down the line. You then start work and your schedule might be all messed up completely yeah. because, you know, you can't really, you're not going to start until they've paid you. Yeah. You're two um, very yeah. different beasts, though. I mean, <clears throat> talking about an agency that can afford yeah, to, to run to, for to 30 run, days. Yeah, or absolutely. Or exactly. freelancer, yeah. Also, I mean, the majority of our clients are um, the kind of organisations that would be highly embarrassed if they didn't pay up kind yeah. of thing. So it's it depends on your client. Um it's I haven't had to consider um um asking for sort of money in the bank for a long, long, long time now. Because mm -hmm. normally the kind of client that I would have to worry about that um wouldn't be prepared to pay our rates. So it's it, it it's it's that's a good thing uh, for us um to be in that position. But um you do have to be aware of it. So Okay. He was died now. Come back. <laughs> It's all right. You only need your phone, Marcus. What are you playing for? <laughs> you want a joke, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to ask you if you had a joke. <laughs> we've got another question, Paul. We have. Uh, so this is from Emil Sundberg, and he writes: "Hi, I'm running a small web agency, and I just found your podcast. Great show. We're a small team, four people, doing web development for clients, and use Basecamp, Backpack, High Rise, Campfire. Yes, the 37 Signals addicts." And I think it would be interesting to hear you talk about how you work with your team in the big picture. Not on an individual project. How do you map plan multiple projects with limited staff? Who's deciding what's most important and what should be the next? Do you use planning tools or an Excel slash whiteboard? Ooh, yes, this kind of carries on quite nicely from the previous question, doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit. I, um, I thought that when I selected it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I've already answered it and now I have to make up more stuff. Yeah. Um, this would be best answered I think by one of our project managers but um, obviously I deal with them a lot so hopefully I can have a pretty good stab at it um, you've got to be very careful about the um, what Emil wrote about who's deciding what's most important that's a very dangerous line to go down um, because if you start putting one client over another um, because they're more important then you're going to end up seriously pissing off um, the rest of your clients um, and they may stop working with you so really it's a case of next one in the door gets to, you know get, goes on the bottom of the list and then the one next one in the door after that goes in the goes um, on you know on the on the list under that on the bottom of the list on that I'm not making sense um, but it's not obviously not that simple because um, some 
uh, some projects that come in are little tiny things uh, and uh, are hugely urgent and we must get this done by the end of the week um, but I think as long as you're fairly open with um, with particularly with new clients about what I just said about you know we, we don't prioritise work we don't um, we, you know, we, we don't pick uh, you know our, our, the, the client that pays us the most doesn't get dealt with the most quickly um, it's a, you know, it's literally a case of sort of um, first come first serve I think I think if you have that as a uh, as a sort of baseline for working it, it just means it's sort of free and fair um, but of course you do have to make the odd exception when things are urgent and you know if it isn't done by next Wednesday then there's no point in doing it then you have to kind of say to yourself well okay we'll see if we can sort of uh, squeeze that one in um Oh, I did actually read this, this question earlier, and I thought I thought about it. I mean, it, very occasionally, you have to be prepared to do all-nighters and things like that. I mean, it is pretty rare, but sometimes if you want to get something something done that's really urgent and you don't want to sort of create all the missed deadlines that we were talking about in, in the previous question, then you have to kind of put extra hours in, um, which it's, for me... Uh, never been a problem because I'm, I'm, it's my company but I have to say that quite a lot of the guys that work for us have been prepared to do it over the years as well um, which is fab and thank you guys if you're listening um, <laughs> so I'm going to go back and read the question if you want to talk about your experience of managing projects for a second while I have a, another think on this one this is the problem of not writing your ideas down isn't it <laughs> so you work on a team Paul don't you you work at the uh, yeah, university and there's what 11 of you um 11, 12, I don't know anymore. Um, breeding like rabbits. We are, and we're going to grow even bigger, which is good. Um, so, we'd, I'd say we're a medium-sized team. Certainly, I mean, there's only four guys on this the, on ML's team, so I would suspect they're all working on kind of the same project at any one time, uh, whereas we, because we're a larger team, and it's probably the same with, with Headscape, we split into different tracks, so we're working on multiple projects at, at the same time. Yeah. Um, so that's where we've only got one project manager uh, we are looking to get another but um, oh poor person <laughs> <laughs> that's harsh yeah so she's got to manage everyone she's got to manage all the design side developers um, we we're quite autonomous in that we we take account for we, we're given a, a task list of what we need to do and what needs to be delivered by by when and we generally manage ourselves mm-hmm. um and on a, on a big picture basis, our project manager looks manages all the schedule from what everyone's doing at any one time, but also the horizon projects that are coming in and what we may need to schedule in in the future, mm. and try and juggle all that together. And as these projects get closer, then the kickoff meetings start. Try and allocate time to them, resource, figure out just what's involved by meeting with the customers and doing all the initial briefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're talking about at the moment is <coughs> trying to get more project manager either another project manager or improve our own individual project management skills right. maybe not to the point of getting a Prince 2 qualification each but just being more aware of it because that's the the kind of standard to which we're working as an organisation uh, and just being able to, to work more effectively on our own for large parts of the time yeah I disagree with that do you? yep I think I think project managers who just project manage are worth their weight in gold um, and people who develop and design should be allowed to get on with that kind of more creative aspect and they shouldn't have to worry about um, deadlines um, and what's the next task and all that kind of thing. They should be concentrating more on the uh, on the task at hand. It was a, the, Tony Blair had a, had a, somebody who basically organised his life for him, didn't he, so that he could concentrate on the on the creative aspects of his job and all this kind of thing. And actually, when I read about it, I thought, well, actually, that does make sense. Um, so... But, uh, we would struggle massively if we didn't have uh, our team of project managers making sure that everything was kind of just ticking along because um, it's kind of uh, I do too I don't really do any project management at all um, thank god um, <laughs> it's uh, my, my job is split in two really I, I obviously do all the sales work um, which is what I particularly like doing but I, I do a lot of um, consultancy work as well where I am effectively working for one of our project managers and it's so I, 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 you know, I, I have that, the, the, you know, that, that relationship with a project manager when I'm knowing that I've got to get something done by this date, so that I can then move on to the next aspect, and then, I, then when I've done that bit, I've finished, and it gets passed on to whoever. Having somebody managing that 
I, I think, I mean, I've not worked in a particularly large team, so um, I've never really had to worry. I've only kind of like one project, one project at a time. You know, what I mean, knowing when the next one's probably going to start, but not working. You know, well, not me, but I, I mean, like you said, you split your you split your teams up so that each year you could be working on four projects, but there'll be like two or three you're working on one project, two or three you're working on another. Because yeah. I've never worked in a really big team. It's just one project at a time. But I know from not just if I, I was project managing myself, I know from what I currently do at the minute. I'm very easily distracted. I can only focus on one thing at once. So I do, um, I do, I do quite a bit of IT. Um, unfortunately, where I am here at yeah. the minute, um, so I'm helping them out with the IT stuff at the minute. So I'm either doing IT or I'm designing. I can't flip between the two. It's just brain doesn't work like that. It's either I'm focusing on IT, or I'm focusing on design, or I'm focusing on development. It's like pick which one you want me to do today, and I'll do that today. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's a good idea to have a. This is what you're doing today. Yeah. I, I mean, although my life's not like that, no. but um, I think if, if if you're a designer, I think it's great to be thinking I've got the next two days on Project X. Um, but I think it's equally good um, for that designer to have, say, three projects on the go at any one time, so that on so say today and tomorrow they're working on Project X, and then Thursday and Friday they're working on project Y, for example, mm. I think that's quite healthy, um, and it also, you know, it, it's it's good for the for the designer so that they're not sort of bogged down in one thing, you know, it, it, I think it's good for sort of an inspiration point of view, you might do something on one one project that you think, well, that would really work on the other one I'm doing, that that kind of thing I think is is a good idea, and again, if you're not having, if you, the designer's not having to worry about the project management aspects of what you're doing, then it's easier to do more design work, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So what planning tools do you use at Headscape to, to manage your, your projects and communicate in the team? We use Basecamp. <laughs> Same here, to be honest. Like most people. I'm a big fan of whiteboards. I love them. Um, I've got one in my home office. Um, I just like walking in in the morning and seeing it all, you know. It's nice, especially if you've got stuff crossed out on it. I've done that. <laughs> um, I've, I don't like Basecamp myself, but then I don't have to manage projects. And our project management team seem to be get on very well with it, and we use it to communicate with uh, with our clients as well. We use it as a document repository, etc., etc., etc. Project management tool. It seems to work very well. So, I was reading a, a book the other day, just a novel that someone said, in, in the book they said. Um, I've become obsessed with to-do lists. I write to-do lists all the time. I even add things to, to my to-do list that I've already done just so that I can cross them off. <laughs> 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 uh, you could have a, you could have a um, an, an item on your to do list which is update my to do list. Yeah, <laughs> and you feel so good when you've crossed a couple of things off. Especially each day, you've got a few things crossed off. You feel like you're really making progress. Yes. Uh, one place where our project manager really comes in is that we, we've just we're just kind of exiting a massive build phase for a big site, and it's gone to like the testing phase. It's gone out to the the clients and customers, and we're asking for feedback. And we're getting feedback left, right, and centre from different email. Someone will come up the desk and say, "Oh, this doesn't work on this," or someone will log it in the help desk issue system or our own internal issue system. And just having someone to to consolidate that feedback mm-hmm. is great. Because then I can just get a list, like a to-do list, saying, "This is wrote, this is what you know about, and you need to fix." And it's like, "Yep, I can do that." Instead of having to wade through and take phone so calls, you spend work. all your time doing it, don't you? That's all you yeah. spend your time doing if you're having to do it yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think I stand by my project managers are worth their weight in gold, and uh, it'd be it'd be a good idea, I think, uh, for you to get more in your team. Yeah, I hope we will. So, I think <laughs> I, I think we may have covered that one as well. I think we have. So, is that the end of the show? It is. It is. So, have you got a joke, Marcus? I have. Hang on a minute. I've got to find it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, here we go. This one made me giggle. It's a little bit risque. Um, this is from Jack Franklin. Uh, a man is stranded on a desert island all alone for ten years. One day, a gorgeous woman wearing a wetsuit and scuba suit, a, a wetsuit and scuba suit, well, that's what it says here, arrives at the island. She comes up to the chap and she says, how long, is it, how long has it been since you had a cigarette? Ten years, he, ans- he answers. She reaches over, unzips the waterproof pocket on her left sleeve and pulls out a pack of fresh cigarettes. He takes one, lights it, takes a long drag and says, oh, that's good. Uh, then she asks, how long is it since you've had some whiskey? He replies, ten years. She reaches over, unzips her waterproof pocket on the right, pulls out a bottle of malt whiskey and gives it to him. He takes a long swallow and says, wow, that's fantastic. 
Then she starts unzipping the long zipper down the front of her wetsuit and says to him, And how long is it since you've had some real fun? And the man replies, My God, don't tell me you've got some golf clubs in there. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) That's really terrible. You didn't know what was coming, though, did you? Nope. (laughs) You you have made me think of a joke that I'm going to tell next week, though, as well now. Oh, are you starting with the jokes as well? Well, you know, since my accent on next week, someone's got to do it. We always fall short with a joke. It's the same joke every week. <laughs> Us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got I got the joke. You didn't need to tell us the punchline. Cheers. <laughs> Bye. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I hope we haven't been too rambling in that, particularly in that last section. I feel like I was kind of just uh, spouting off the top of my head there a bit, um, but hopefully it was useful. Hopefully so. And I'm sure yeah. people will comment in the uh, in the show notes if uh, if they didn't find it so. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, well, thanks for joining us, Marcus. My pleasure. Thanks for doing the show. No worries. And we'll see you guys later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, world of Boeing. It's like being on David Letterman.